This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and today we're talking about the different ways of understanding the world that exist here on the Colorado Plateau. We know there is a lot of great Western science that happens here, but there is also long-held indigenous knowledge that is centered on knowing this place. Today, we talk about these knowledges and how to speak across them. It's a good show recorded for you in Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. This world is contained with many knowledges. We have a sphere of science as one, Zuni knowledge as another, maybe Navajo and Hopi and others kinds of knowledges. And how do we, over the next several decades then, is how do we start to bring in those different knowledges? I see them as being not something that would contradict science. It's really, they enhance each other. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Jim Enote. Jim is a Zuni writer, farmer, and the CEO of the Colorado Plateau Foundation. Jim is also a trained scientist, and we talk with him about the different ways that Western scientists and indigenous communities both understand the world and maintain the knowledge they've gained. Jim explains how we can begin to speak across those understandings to make the world better for both people and the natural environment. Our conversation begins with Jim explaining when he first realized there are multiple ways of understanding the world. Recognizing that there are different ways of knowing came to me very early. When I was young, um, maybe less than 10 years old and older than five, I think I remember seeing my great-grandfather going outside uh, just at sunrise, and he would be outside and he would be praying as the sun would come up. And he would have a blanket on because it was usually chilly, even if it was the summer, and especially if it was in winter. But he would he would come in every morning, and I knew what he was doing was he was he was praying uh, not only to the sun, but to and with something bigger that I came to understand later as that he was really part of helping to nudge all these things that we might say is a cosmological process, like the sun coming up each day, the day getting longer or shorter, winters changing from short days to longer days in spring and summer, the moon phases, the different kind of seasons and effects that we become to know as like monsoons or things like that, that all those things are happening not external from the the world that we live in, that we are actually part of it, that we can be part of influencing it and helping it, nudging it, if, if you could say that. So when I watched him, I, I also realized that 
at the same time, because that's a time when I was in school, and I remember hearing teachers say that um, the Earth revolves around its axis, and there's a solar system, and I was I was learning these things about the world and how it's ordered in a different way than I was watching my great-grandparents live it. My great-grandparents passed away when I was 17, so for a large part they raised me. And so to be raised by someone that was alive in the 1800s is pretty special. But even more significant is what I realize is they were living a life unencumbered with the kind of knowledges that I have in my mind now. I'm trained as a scientist, but they were living in a world that was not exposed to the kind of mathematics we use now, not exposed to the ideas of gravitational forces and the earth rotating on its axis. They saw the world and it's just its face value. They saw the world in a very, very different way. And I came to realize how beautiful that is. And I also came to realize that it's a real struggle for me to live in two worlds. One is like, I'm, I'm fortunate that some of what they told me about what, how they see the world has really become part of me. There, there are times where I see, I see some rain in a distance and my thought immediately goes to, oh, here they come, without, uh, without me stopping to filter that without me stopping to think about what's well, precipitation and the condensation and the humidity levels, things like that, the dew points. I just, well, sometimes when I see some things, I go directly to, oh, here they come. Like the energy and spirit of, of ancestors past. It's like riding a horse, kind of Roman style, where one foot is on this foot of modernity and the other foot is on this, this, this horse of tradition, and we have to ride both at the same time. And it's not easy to keep balanced. And at times, while I think you know, science is incredibly valuable and important, absolutely, it's a different knowledge system, but it can eclipse the other knowledge system, the other way of knowing. And I think that's a challenge for all of us going forward, especially in a field of cultural resource management or natural resource management, is to begin to understand, especially in this region on the Colorado Plateau, where there are so many different tribes, that there are different knowledges out there, different knowledges and ontologies. And how do we, over the next several decades then, is how do we start to bring in those different knowledges? I see them as being not something that would contradict science. It's really they enhance each other. They're just different knowledges. This world is contained with many knowledges. So we have a sphere of science as one, Zuni knowledge as another, maybe Navajo and Hopi and others kinds of knowledges. And we we must be careful not to have one eclipse another, right? Which has been happening really. So if you when we try to do that, actually I tried for many years as a natural resource director to try to bring botanists together with, uh, with Zuni knowledge keepers about plants. And when they began working together, what we ended up really was ethnobotany. And so what that meant to me is that 
we were taking the traditional Zuni knowledge, but it was being subjugated by the science to be an ethno-science, and we ended up with ethnobotany. Now, ethnobotany is important. I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It's just that it's a different way of ordering knowledge as well. So it, it takes this traditional knowledge and it's subjugated to ethno-science, and it's just a different way of ordering, and it eclipsed the traditional knowledge. For one, it was in English. Next, it was using Latin terms and, and, and so on for identifying plants. And, and I think that, again, that, that just made the point to me. It's not necessarily how we try to bring knowledges together. It's better, if really, of how we learn across knowledge systems. You can have a mediator between, and really I think what we're looking at over, you know, in the future, somebody who's very clever would be somebody that is really in a position of mediating knowledges because what we have remaining of traditional knowledge in the Southwest and the Colorado Plateau and the good and noble scientists that we have here as well is how do we bring them closer together? How can they benefit from each other? But it's going to take somebody to mediate those knowledges. Are there examples of effective ways that that has worked so far? At Zuni, when I was the museum director there, we introduced this idea of map art. And the idea there was to understand that mapping is powerful and that maps can be very beneficial and helpful but if you're not careful they can work against you also we also knew that maps have eclipsed a lot of our knowledge of place with different names and symbols and colors and things that do not include us as as zuni people and other native peoples and so what we did was to put forward a different idea of mapping. And so one was recognizing the power of maps and knowing that the maps are very influential and very persuasive. But we also brought together Zunis and people with knowledge of places. We brought them together with artists, Zuni artists. And they created some new kinds of maps. They were maps of plays. They were about geography. They were really about describing places, but not with a longitude and latitude, not with scales that most people are familiar with. They were not topographic, and they were not necessarily intended to be observed by looking straight down. They were really about vignettes of information about place. And so the artist created a new kind of maps. And... I and others really were mediators in that, mediating the different knowledges between the ideas of cartography and geography and the ideas of Zuni knowledge of place. And, and so the, the product really was these, this incredible collection of 31 handmade painted maps, I mean, watercolors, acrylics, oils, and others, that, that we exhibited not only at Zuni, but in New York City and in Los Angeles and, and, and other places. And we found it really incredible the way, or the, I guess the reaction that people had, the non-native reaction was, because we in the exhibit gallery, we would have topographic maps of some place, like the Grand Canyon 
And people would look at them and say, oh, yeah, okay, I recognize this. But they would come around the corner, and then they would see these hand-painted Zuni maps of the same place. And they would be confronted with this, and they'd think, well, I thought this was an exhibit about maps, Zuni maps. And they'd look at it, and they would struggle, like, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. But really, as they started to go through the exhibit, they realized, like, um, I see that there are two ways of looking at the same thing. So they were encountering different knowledges and by themselves actually being mediators in that process as well, being mediating the different knowledges. And so by the time they came out of that exhibit, they were thinking, wow, I, I, I can appreciate there's many ways of looking at the world. There are many ways of knowing. So there are examples of how to mediate knowledges. They are out there. And I think it's going to be a new field for people. Or you know, specialists and scientists and others will take it upon themselves to become mediators. Yeah, what would that look like for a scientist to, to get involved in that kind of mediating of knowledge? Well, I think just taking the initiative to ask somebody about something different, going beyond what you know. As I said, I'm a trained scientist as well. But I'm, I'm also interested in how the Japanese look at the world or at how people in Vietnam might look at the world and in other places. I think that knowledge and how we apply it is, is a lifetime additive process. That after university, we don't, we don't take that toolbox and then go into the world and say, okay, I, I know how to fix these things now. I have the toolbox to do that. But actually in life, we, we start to add new tools into that. And, or we also learn how to use those tools differently. It requires someone with an open mind, really, and with someone that wants to learn more and, and learn how to do things differently. And I think we all want to do our jobs better, more efficiently, more effectively. And we all want to make the world a more beautiful place. In, in thinking about these different forms of knowledges and how, like you've been saying, Western science has eclipsed other forms of knowledges, how do you see this mediation between the knowledges working in like a public policy or a public lands or a natural resource arena? Well, I think you, you, you got directly to it with the policy. Because I have been in positions before where I was negotiating with Forest Service, U.S. Forest Service, USDA, also with the U.S. Back then it was the Soil Conservation Service. And they just were not equipped policy-wise to listen, even if they wanted to. It just wasn't in their policy to include this other kind of what they would say maybe as anecdotal information. They just weren't equipped for that. Um, that's changing now. In some respect, some there have been some attempts at co-management with tribes around managing different resources around like fisheries and bison and things like that. And I think it's it's been definitely some steps forward. That there's been a, some real advances compared to when I was doing things 30 years ago. That it was just really hard to move things forward, but they are changing. Um, 
and requires policy. So some of these things that establish these sorts of circumstances and these arrangements, such as maybe the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission or maybe a, a bison co-management area um, or Bears Ears National Monument, requires really acts of law. It, it requires policy change. And I think it's similar in a different scale. It may be like, say, with a conservation organization, a nonprofit or non-governmental organization, like a well-meaning and well-intentioned environmental or conservation organization may want to include a native perspective, a native voice, and native knowledges. And some staff may see that's the right way to go, but the boards of those organizations have to be in line with that as well. So this is something that I've learned over the past several years as well, is that boards and trustees make policy and monitor policy. So if it's, if it's government, state or federal, county, city, it, it requires somebody to make that policy to in, include those, those voices and those knowledges, right? If it's a non-governmental organization or nonprofit, it requires the board especially to put forward new policy to make that happen. People would, would say, well, we need to work with Native people because they've been done wrong. Um, we feel bad about that. There's some guilt. Well, that, that really doesn't get us Native people very far. It's, I mean, it's for someone to feel guilty and feel bad about something, well, that's one thing. At least they're being introspective and they're reflecting on that. But really to move things forward is they have to really understand and believe that it makes sense. And I think it does. It makes sense to include different kinds of, of knowledge and, of course, to be inclusive and seek out diversity and equity. So we do these things because it makes sense. And that's what moves, you know, our, that's what moves humanity and, and community forward is to do things that make sense. We want things to make sense, and we want them to be righteous as well. Um, you brought up Bears Ears as an example from our region. How have you seen it being effective in its ability to mediate knowledge, or has it not been? Well, without getting into the politics of this, I mean, obviously the, the politics were contentious, and that's uh, that's um, it's a matter for the the courts and political leaders to, to work out. From my perspective, I think the Bears Ears is a library for this nation's, this great nation's experience. Only now, Native people are starting to get into this conversation and being able to say, you know, that's not a sacred site, that's a sacred place. And the reason that altar or that structure or those petroglyphs are there is because this was good farming soil and there was a spring there, you know, life-sustaining waters. And there was a view of another place and a distance from this place where people would send messages. Rather than, you know, many people would think, well, I thought it was just a, a petroglyph or I thought it was just a rock, pile of rocks. Just now, people, the Native people are starting to get into this conversation and say, look, there's much more to the context of this than many people recognize. And I think this, there's some urgency to it 
because the people that know these things are elders. And they may not be here in 20 years. And for Bear's Ears to be part of this nation's great history, those people need to be participating and those places need to be protected. So those people can say, that place is there for a reason. I mean, why in the world would anyone else live in that place? And when you think about traversing and, and moving across this landscape thousands of years ago, why would people choose this place or that place? There's a reason. Why did they write those things on those walls? There was a reason. But what were those reasons? This is the, the part of the the history and the experience that should be protected. And again, I think that if it's not, then we lose it forever. And I think that many people, if they really understood the depth of this, they would say that their grandchildren and great-grandchildren and on and onwards should not be denied that this place exists. That once it's gone, it's gone forever. These are very fragile places. There is knowledge here. We just have to be able to open the book. And the book is here. Some of that information, as far as I understand it, and obviously please correct me in every way, but um, some of that information in within the held within the knowledge and the whys related to the place are... Um, are knowledges that are kept within Native communities. And as a Western culture that has, that the whys and the tell me all the informations is so ingrained as part of Western science, um, how do you see working through this idea that the knowledge isn't always meant to be shared? Well, different people and different cultures have very dissimilar ways of maintaining, sharing, transferring knowledge. And Zuni, Navajo, Hopi, all the tribes in this region have different ways of transmitting and sharing knowledge. When we have different ceremonies, there are certain things that we can observe and see, some things we're not supposed to approach too closely, some things we're just not supposed to know until we are initiated into a particular group that is responsible for that knowledge. And so, really, as we get older and we get initiated into one of these groups, my grandma, for example, was in one of the medicine groups. She was initiated into that. I am initiated into a Kiva society. Other people are initiated into different groups, rain priests or bow priests and, and so on. And all of those groups contain and maintain a knowledge very strictly from generation to generation, and they have leaders that are appointed based on their temperament, based on their knowledge, based on their standing, and they're leaders for life. And they they tell the people in their groups, this is how we do things. This is the prayer you should know. This is how we make this. This is how we paint it. This is how we prepare these things, year after year after year. And they can keep that to themselves. And so we really end up, what we have is these many silos of knowledge within our, 
our villages, our communities, at Zuni, at Hopi, and other places. And I have been asked before by people saying, wouldn't that knowledge be better maintained if everybody had access to it? And my answer to that was, well, I, I can imagine that if, if you remember that, that game you play in school where you whisper something into one person's ear in a classroom and it goes through the class, repeated, repeated, repeated through all the class, and it comes out, the last person to hear it says it out loud, and it's really something completely distorted from the original message. This is about maintaining knowledge in a way that's unique to this part of the world, but also this is the way that knowledge has been maintained without a written script. So when you think of that, how all of this has been maintained, how Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde, Bears Ears region, all these things, how were things organized and put together and maintained for such a long time without a written script? It was the way they ordered knowledge. The way they transferred and shared knowledge was very particular. So when I went to a university and professors were telling me in a big, great lecture hall that that knowledge should be shared openly and we should all exchange knowledge and, and write and speak about what we know, that we should all have access to all knowledge. I thought, well, that's very different from where I grew up because we did not have access to everything and we were not supposed to know everything in the world, that knowledge would be contained in some places. We don't have to know everything. I think we are, we are better off knowing the things that are important to us and knowing the things that help to make our lives better for our family and communities, certainly, and to a large degree knowing what's going to make the world better. But there are other things out there that are secret, and the world is bound by secret knots. You know, not just by everything is free and owned by everyone. The world is also held together by secret knots. When did you decide to commit yourself to this work? I found my way to doing the work I do, one, because of, obviously, in my culture, there's a respect for the world around us, nature, and those things that sustain us. Coming from a culture and being a practitioner of a culture of land use, I, I understand how important water is and how important soils and seeds and other things that bring us life, how important those things are. So that, that was one. But also, going back further, I knew that there was something wrong. There was still injustice. There was still not a way for me to fully make an impact and affect things for the better. And that goes back to when one of my earliest memories was holding my mother's hand and when she squeezed it tightly and I looked at her, it was a tear rolling down her cheek. And I realized it was because we were standing in front of a whites-only public restroom. And my mother was very conflicted and, and just confused about where to take me. So that stuck with me, that there are things that are just not right that should be made right. And I want to be deliberate about how to make things better for everyone. To be part of including and mediating different knowledges, 
to be part of a generation of nation builders and not a generation of sufferers. That what has inspired me and brought me to the work I am doing today. And finally, what do you enjoy about this work? What I am enjoying most now, you know, besides my farming, because I'm still a farmer. And in fact, this is my 62nd consecutive year planting. I, I've been planting seeds since I was in a cradle board. My grandmother and aunties put seeds in my hand and I dropped those seeds into a hole and every year after that I've been planting something. So that that's important to me. That's it, it's it's just glorious to see rainbows over cornfields and to see tsetiti, to see dew on corn leaves shimmering in morning light. That is all glorious. That's that's what I love about just life for one thing. But also now I'm doing work in the philanthropic field and and founded not too long ago the Colorado Plateau Foundation. And that work then is, as I was saying before, is I want to help people, well, especially young Native people, because that's where we are in service too. Our grant making is to support young Native people that want to make a difference and want to do that back at home on the reservations. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming in and for talking to us about these different ideas and how we can mediate these knowledges. We really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. To listen to this interview with Jim Enote again or any of our past shows, visit sciencemoab.org, kzmu.org, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music is by Jeremy Spalding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hodgkins, and KZMU.